My name is Mike Tucker. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, Caleb, as you know, is in Louisiana with his family. He will be back later this week, but we want to, you know, give him a break. So uh, I'll be preaching again next Sunday, and then the Sunday after that, Jesse will be preaching, and then Caleb will return to his preaching duties after that. Let's uh, let's get going here. We're going to look at uh, Hebrews 12, 1 through 17 this morning. Caleb, when he preached last week, right, rightly pointed out that the pinnacle of the book of Hebrews is Jesus Christ. The reason the author penned this sermon to his congregation was to get his people to see Christ as superior overall, who offered the superior sacrifice, who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high as our superior high priest, and not to reject him in favor of going back to some observance of the law or to anything else as a way to make their lives less problematic and to avoid persecution. The method the author uses in the book of Hebrews is to exalt Christ, to point out his superiority, that he's the only path to salvation, and then to warn his readers to not reject him. He wants them to know that there's no other way. He warns his people that they cannot play around at church, thinking that simply associating with believers is enough to get them saved. There are six warnings in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 12 contains the last of those warnings, and really the whole of chapter 12 is a build-up to that final warning. It begins, as you would expect, with Jesus Christ, and then focuses on God's discipline. And finally, the warning itself is a contra- as a contrast to what some look back to and that what others, believers, look forward to. We'll look at that part next week. For now... For today, we're going to look at the fact that we are called to endure as Christ endured, that we are called to accept God's discipline, that we are called to be ready for God's discipline, and that we're called to help one another through God's discipline. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that Jesus Christ is our superior high priest and that he is the one who offered the perfect sacrifice. So, it's so that we would be enabled to come to you without having to observe the law, without having to keep some set of rules or some set of standards, but simply by believing. God, we praise you for that. And God, as we go through this passage this morning, I would pray that you would open our hearts to what you have to say to us and that you'd open our hearts to this idea of your discipline. In Jesus' name, amen. We are called to endure as Christ endured. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the author calls this a race. We're in a race. We're in a long race. And it's a race that's been laid out for us. The author calls his readers to endure suffering and persecution. And to give it uh, courage to endure, he cited in chapter 11 a whole bunch of witnesses who ran with endurance and who were faithful to God. 
He cites 14 examples, named examples of people who are faithful and enduring, and he cites another dozen or more unnamed examples, faithful runners, some who saw victory and some who didn't. Now, important thing to understand. This cloud of witnesses that, uh, that, his, that the author has laid before us are not, not up in heaven in the bleacher section, cheering us on as we go through our race. They aren't witnesses of us. They are witnesses to us or for us. They're witnesses as examples to show us how to faithfully endure. And, of course, as the author points out, the highest example of of endurance is Jesus Christ, whom the author calls us to look to. We are reminded that Jesus is the founder, the founder of our faith. Remember Trailblazer? We talked about that earlier. He's laid out the trail for us to follow the trail of faith. But Jesus is also, as the author says here in this passage, the perfecter or the finisher of our faith. He's laid out the trail and he's completed it so that we can follow and so that we can complete it as well. See, Jesus is not only the ultimate example of faith, he's also the ultimate example of endurance. The author points out that Jesus endured the cross, not focusing on the pain of the cross or the shame of it, but looking to the joy that was to be his when he endured. Isaiah speaks of how the Messiah endured and received this joy in Isaiah 53. This is part of the passage that's called the, uh, the servant song of the Messiah. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to the death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. For Jesus, the joy was sitting at the right hand of God, becoming our superior high priest, and to intercede for us. For us, the joy before us is what the author has already talked about, homeland and a relationship with God. <clears throat> Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having knowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this this way must make it, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of a land that was from which they had gone out, they could have returned. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We are called to accept God's discipline. Hebrews 12, 3 through 11. Consider him... Excuse me. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father 
whom his father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline, in which all of us have participated, then you, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not have much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. <clears throat> the author speaks about enduring persecution. There are all kinds of suffering in persecution. And there is suffering that isn't specifically persecution. James talks about various trials. But whether persecution or other kinds of suffering, the author asks us to consider the suffering we endure as discipline. He wants us to accept God's discipline. The people who read this letter, likely in Rome, were within memory of the persecution toward the Jews under the Roman Emperor Claudius, which also affected Christians. They are dealing presently with what might be termed mild persecution, if mild can be used to describe confiscation of property and imprisonments. And it would not be very long before a very severe persecution began under the Roman Emperor Nero. The author calls his readers to Christ's endurance of such hostility from sinners, those who oppose Christ. And remember that Jesus said that we will be hated because the world hates him. Paul also said that it has been granted to us not only to believe, but to suffer for his sake. We are to consider Christ's endurance that we will not grow weary or faint-hearted. We are to consider Christ's endurance so that we won't give up. And to use the author's, author's term, to not to drift away. As we've already mentioned, there were some in the church that were not believers because they were with believers. They began experiencing persecution and were thinking, maybe this isn't worth it. Maybe I need to find a way out. You, you may remember our fictional first century friend who we introduced at the beginning of this series in Hebrews, a young man named Antonius. Jewish young man who became part of a fellowship of Christians in a local house church. And because of that, he began to experience persecution, persecution from his family, from his employer. He lived in, in uh, conditions that were less than desirable. And he was looking for a way to get out, to avoid the persecution. And then the author in our passage says something unexpected and startling. <clears throat> He says that they have not resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. Wait a minute. <clears throat> Are we to understand that our struggle against sin will result in shedding blood? Perhaps. The author is saying that the suffering they are enduring will get worse. <clears throat> the author here suggests the idea of suffering as one way for God to deal with sin in your life. He has made a connection between the purpose of suffering and overcoming sin. Going further, the author suggests that his readers have forgotten the instructions from Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, which he quotes in this passage. And with that quote, the author suggests suffering is, a, is loving discipline from God to deal with our sin. Has God not dealt with my sin through Jesus on the cross? Yes, he has. Of course he has. But as Paul said, we still live in this body of flesh, and we still sin. 
And if we look at our lives and we're honest, as believers, when we sin, we increasingly don't like it. Not like we used to enjoy it before we were believers. And if we look at our lives over time, we realize that the sin in our life grows less and less. That's because God is working through us. And sometimes he works through us to do that through suffering. This is one of the main points of this passage. God loves you. And because he loves you, he wants to deal with the sin that is still in your life. And one way he does that is through the discipline of suffering and persecution. Now, it's important to understand that persecution is not judgment. Your sins, my sins, all of them were judged on the cross. Suffering and persecution is not also not punishment. God's not going to punish a sin. He's already punished on the cross. Now, there are consequences to sin, even consequences that we commit as believers. Sometimes God mitigates those consequences. Sometimes he doesn't. Uh, For example, if I were going, uh, say, 51 miles an hour in a 35-mile-an-hour zone and a cop stopped me, I would have to pay a fine. I'd have to pay expensive fine. It's very expensive. (laughs) Now, I could consider that punishment, but discipline is not judgment, and discipline is not punishment. (coughs) The context of the quote from Proverbs that the author uh, puts in his letter there exhorts people to seek God's wisdom. And you you may be familiar with that passage in Proverbs. It includes admonitions to trust the Lord with all your heart and to acknowledge him in all your ways and to not neglect his discipline. It's all part of growing in wisdom. The best way to understand discipline here, I think, is to understand it as correction. The idea of discipline is meant to get you on the right path. What's the right path? Well, it's not just dealing with sin, although that's certainly part of it, but it's growing you and maturing you. It's a path that includes trust. I've talked here before about uh, my life growing up uh, as a teenager. And uh, my mom divorced my dad and after 27 years of marriage, and she eventually married a guy who was an abusive fellow. Uh, for me, the abuse was mostly verbal. But once I became a Christian in that situation, the quality and the quantity of that abuse increased because I became a Christian. I can't repeat the things he said, but the things he said were said because I very imperfectly lived a life trying to follow Christ. So what sin was God dealing with with me in my life during that time? Well, among other things, it was the sin of just not fully trusting God. I was still a fairly young Christian. I still had issues of fully trusting, and that was part of what was going on. But it was also about strengthening my faith in him, strengthening my trust in him. God's discipline and suffering and persecution, now catch this, is because he loves you. That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate to his readers. The suffering you're going through right now isn't some kind of punishment. It isn't some kind of just uh, random thing that's happening to you without purpose. It's because God loves you. It's because of his loving discipline that he does this and that you have to endure. 
Because God is treating you like his child. And then the author goes on in verses 7 through 11 to compare the discipline of an earthly father with God and his role as heavenly father. He says our earthly fathers disciplined us. God will also discipline us. He says that we respect our earthly fathers for disciplining us. Now I know not all of us had fathers that were worthy of respect. But as a general rule, we respect our fathers because they disciplined us. Should we not even more accept the discipline from God, the Father of Spirits? And by it have life. The author says our dads discipline us for a short time. God disciplines us for our good. That we might share his holiness. So we see here that God's discipline is not just dealing with sin. But also increasing holiness and righteousness in our life. And then he says moreover discipline hurts. Yes it does. It's painful. But God's discipline yields in us. As the author says a peaceful fruit of righteousness. And then once we have been trained by it, or once we have learned from it, it produces that fruit. This echoes what James said. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It echoes what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, 3 and 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And it echoes what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 6-9. In this rejoice, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So how foolish is it then to complain about God's discipline or to fight against it or to find a way out, to try and find a way out of the suffering, to try and find a way out of the persecution. If we do that, it's just going to lead to anger. And for some who are on the edges, it will lead to a rejection of Jesus Christ. It will lead to a rejection of the faith they were playing at. One more point about God's discipline. Look at verse 8 again. Hebrews 12, 8. If you are left without discipline in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. God's discipline to purge sin from your life and to produce in you both faith and righteousness in your life is the identification to you that you are a legitimate son or daughter of God. We have the Holy Spirit in us. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit gives us witness internally to us that we are God's children. But here, the author says, the outward persecution, the outward suffering that comes into our lives is the mark of our legitimacy as God's children. Dr. George Guthrie wrote a commentary on Hebrews, and he tells a story of when he was in China teaching this particular section of Hebrews to underground Christians there. One woman who uh, was sitting toward the back was listening, and as she was listening, she began to get excited and started talking to the 
person next to her. And after the teaching was over, she came up to him. And she had tears streaming down her face. She had been in prison as a young Christian in her 20s. And she said to him, I've been taught all my life in the church in China that the reason I was facing illness or persecution was because God was punishing me for my sins. And she said, Now, I see in Hebrews that Christ has already dealt decisively with my sins, and when I face difficulties, it's not punishment, that it is just God training me. He's disciplining me in the sense of training me to be more mature in the faith. And the writer of Hebrew calls us, Hebrews calls us to be ready for God's discipline. Hebrews 12, 12 through 13. <clears throat> Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make paths straight for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. My wife, as you know, was an elementary school teacher for 36 years. <clears throat> um, and because of that, of course, she knows a whole lot about the teaching of children. I know next to nothing about teaching children, and that's why I don't do it. But one day, years ago, when my son was three years old, we were walking out of the grocery store. Jason and uh, my wife Nancy, they were holding hands, walking through the parking lot. I was pushing the cart. And Jason was looking at the cars, and then he stopped and pointed at a license plate on one of the cars. He said, what's that? Actually, he said, what are those? He was referring to the letters and the numbers on the license plate. And as a trained, experienced educator, Nancy knew immediately that Jason had reached the point of what educator call, educators call readiness. Readiness to learn something. In this case, it was readiness to learn how to read. <clears throat> the question becomes, discipline will come. How can we know that we are ready? For God's discipline. How can we know that we have the readiness for God's discipline? Well, the author tells us in the passage we just read. The author commands his people to lift. It's a command. To lift or to strengthen. To lift or to strengthen themselves. He uses the, the image of hands and knees. That actually comes from Isaiah 35.3, where God calls his people to get ready for God coming to deliver. The author is calling his people to get to the business of believing that is, to live their lives as believers in Christ and not to be looking back to old ways, old ways of life, or looking for something that's easier and that will require very much hardship. It is the resolve to live as a believer. The New Living Translation says to take a new grip. The second command in this passage is to make your path straight. This comes from Proverbs 4.26. In that section of Proverbs, God commands his people to exercise wisdom in removing the things that distract. In the Proverbs passage, it's things like removing perverse speech. And it's also looking straight ahead, not, follow, not allowing yourself to look to the right or the left as you follow God. The author addresses that. He actually mentioned that in verse 1 of our passage today. He says to lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. Put together, these two commands call us to resolve to walk straight, fully focused on God, not being distracted by sin, not being distracted by things that would tend to draw us away or be an easier path. <clears throat> One purpose of this, as the author says, is that when discipline comes, spiritual healing will take place. Healing the weak areas in your life. 
healing the sin that dogs you, healing the sin and the weakness that is hurting you, so that it will be repaired. Jesus himself addressed this idea in a different way. In the letter he wrote to the Christians at the church at Laodicea in the book of Revelation. The church Jesus described as lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. He said, you know, I just want to spit you out of my mouth. But then he provides a remedy. Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The remedy is inviting Jesus. The second purpose is holiness. Discipline is not just for dealing with sin, but also to produce holiness in you, to make you more like Jesus Christ. Randy mentioned this passage when he, uh, when he began this morning. Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God wants to make us like his Son, Jesus. So healing and holiness become the goal of God's loving discipline in your life. And then we are called to help one another through God's discipline. Hebrews 12, 14 through 17. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no, no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or, immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, and he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. God's discipline in our lives is not meant to be dealt with in isolation. We are together a body of believers. We are together God's temple. We are together gifted so that we can edify one another. The Christian community in this local fellowship of believers that the writer was writing to was facing and had been facing persecution, and they were to face even greater persecution. Where would they go for strength and for comfort and for provision and for encouragement in the persecution and suffering? Where would they go? Well, certainly they go to God. But God has made the body of Christ the conduit of his comfort and provision and encouragement and strength. He has chosen you and me to provide those things to one another. And then the author goes on to say, or to talk about how believers are to live with and help one another in our readiness for the Lord's discipline as we go through the discipline. And in this he makes two broad points. He says first to strive... And then he says to see to it. The authors use already two commands, to lift and to make straight. Here he gives a third command in his first broad point, to strive for. The author wants his people to strive or to chase after or to pursue peace and holiness. As to peace, Paul elsewhere encourages us to produce peace as far as it is possible for us to do so. Peter calls his readers to pursue peace. Conflict in the church is not useful. It only leads to fracturing and a poor witness. In the context of Hebrews, the author is concerned for some, or that some in the church are in danger of drifting away. Conflict will only make it harder for them to come back to Christ. 
make it easier for them to drift away. As to striving after holiness, we know that we can do nothing to make ourselves holy or righteous. That's God's work. But God has ordained that the holiness that he wants to impart in our lives comes in comes in how we grow into righteousness, the ongoing sanctification of growth in Christ-likeness. Peter says in 2 Peter that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And then he says in verses 5 through 7, for this, every, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and, with, and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. We are declared righteous because of Christ's work. But there is work to do in, to grow in righteousness. God has called us to make every effort to appropriate what he has given. And he's called us to help each other in that effort. The second broad point is to first see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And then second, to see to it that no root of bitterness comes up and defiles many. We are responsible to first continue to preach the gospel to one another, and especially to those in our fellowship who might be on the edge of believing or might be on the edge of drifting away. We cannot force someone to believe, but we can show them the gospel. We can preach the gospel. We can show them God's grace. We can show them the grace of God's salvation. Second, we are to see that we do not allow any root of bitterness to grow. Now, the author here is not talking about dealing with someone who's bitter. What he's talking about actually comes from, and that reference comes from Deuteronomy 29.18. Beware lest there be any among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve those gods, the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Moses, who wrote that, makes the point that he wants to be sure that no individual, no family, no one in the, any clan, no one in anyone in the nation will be drawn away by false gods. And in doing that, become a bitter root of poison in the family or in the nation. Our author's point is the same. We need to share the gospel with those on the edge of our fellowship so they can come to Christ and not become a bitter root of poison that could infect the church. And the author uses the example of Esau, who sold his birthright for a pot of stew. And because of that, disdained what would otherwise have been his, the blessing of the firstborn, which went to Jacob. And then Esau had no chance to get it back. This illustration points out that there is a point of no return for people who drift away, which is something the author's talked about more than once in the book of Hebrews. I know a man, I still know him, who is uh, one of those people on the edge. He's a nice guy, friendly. He was a part of uh, a small group I was in at the time. And he would occasionally come to our church services. In the small group, he was very engaged. He was engaged with the other folks in the group. He was engaged in with what we were studying. And he said on more than one occasion that the group helped him and that what we studied helped him. 
to deal with people in his life, to deal with situations in his life. I talked to him one day because it was pretty clear to me that he wasn't a believer. He's one of those people on the edge, one of those people on the fringe. I told him that Christ died for him, that Christ died for his sin, and to make a way for him to have eternal life. He smiled and said, thank you. Never received Christ, but continued to be part of that small group. I pray that he will receive Christ someday. I'm afraid, though, that he may be one of those who drift away. You and me are legitimate children of God. He loves you and me. And his love is so deep that having saved us, he wants us to sin less and become more righteous, to become more like his son, Jesus Christ. And one way he does that is through the God-ordained discipline of suffering and persecution. If you get nothing else today, I want you to get this. When God uses discipline in your life, when suffering and persecution come, know that it is the mark of your legitimacy as a daughter of God and as a son of God. Son and daughter of your Father in heaven. He lovingly disciplines you. You are his. A couple more things to get if you have room. Get ready for discipline by resolving to follow Christ in every way possible. Lift those weak knees and make a straight path. And I encourage you that right now, you can think about it. But right now, identify one thing in your life or one area in your life that you just know needs more righteousness. You just know that you're not where God would want you to be there. And then commit it to him. Give it to God and ask God to do whatever he needs to do to deal with that in your life. And then strive for peace with your brothers and sisters and especially for those who may be on the edge. Those who may be in danger of drifting away. And strive others in their journey of holiness. Pray for them, rejoice with them, weep with them, be with them. It's good to be here on Sunday mornings. It's great to be here on Sunday mornings. It is necessary that as believers you're involved with other believers during the week. Get in a group, grace group. Men's ministry, women's ministry, D groups. And then speak the gospel to one another. If you see someone beginning to drift away, grab them. Share the gospel. Tell them about Jesus Christ. And do it again if you have to. And I want to end with Proverbs 3, 5 through 12. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshments to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all you produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as the father, the son in whom he delights. Let's pray. Father God, we don't like pain. We don't like hardship. We don't like when things hurt physically or emotionally. We don't like it, Father, when we're 
stressed to the max because of stuff going on in our life. We don't we don't like those things. But we realize, Father, those things don't come to us in isolation. We realize those things don't happen just because they happen. They happen because you're disciplining us. And it's not a discipline of punishment. It's not a discipline of judgment. It's a discipline to get sin out of our life. And it's a discipline to get us on the right path, to make us more righteous, to make us more holy, to make us more like Jesus. So, Father, when the discipline comes... And it may be difficult to do this, Father, but when the difficulty comes, when the discipline comes, I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to stop for a moment and look to you and say, thank you, God, because I know this discipline shows that I'm your son and I'm your daughter and that you're going to do something great in me through it. And help us, Father, as others go through your discipline to be an encouragement and a help and a strength to them as well. In Jesus' name, we pray.